0: Welcome to the MIT Sloan Sports Analytics Conference podcast, presented by ESPN and 42 Analytics. This is Jessica Gelman, who, along with Daryl Morey, co-founded and chair the conference with a fantastic group of MIT Sloan students each year.
1: Thanks for listening, and enjoy.
0: I'm Chris Tinsley, a second year student here at MIT. and It's my pleasure to welcome today's panel, The Sports Learning Curve, Why Teams Are Slow to Learn and Adapt. On today's panel, we have Daryl Morey, GM of the Houston Rockets, Bill James, baseball historian, statistician, and Sashi Brown with Monumental Basketball. Moderating today's panel will be Richard Taylor, Nobel Prize-winning economist and professor at Chicago Booth. This panel will run for approximately 55 minutes. We'll leave 10 minutes of that for Q&A. Please submit your questions via Twitter using the hashtag #SportsLearningCurve. With that, I'll leave it to you.
1: Okay. Uh, oh, there is, okay. Uh, all right, so there's, there's no monitor, so I'm gonna click, but I will have no idea what I'm seeing.
0: Oh, there, you can walk around.
1: Uh, yeah, there is that. Okay,
0: <laughs> all right, so uh,
1: let's see. All right, guys. There you go. Here, here. All right, so um, let's go back. Um, This is the team that's helped put this project together and uh, here's where we start. After 40 years or so of me beating them over the head, economists are starting to accept the idea that consumers are dumb and investors are dumb (laughs) uh, and certainly GMs uh, are dumb, But, uh, but But firms, firms are thought to be smart. And firms are thought to still maximize profits. And the argument they give is something about competition. Because if they weren't smart, then somebody else would drive them out of business. And there's a quote from my colleague, my late colleague, Gary Becker. It doesn't matter if 90% of people can't do the complex analyses required to calculate probabilities. The 10% of people who can will end up in the jobs where it's required. So the question for the day is, are owners, general managers, coaches, and gurus in professional sports in Becker's 10%? So here's the outline of what I'm gonna talk about today. Two examples each from baseball, basketball, and football, stuff that we analytics types think teams have historically gotten wrong. And I'm gonna show you some graphs about whether they learn and if so, at what speed. So uh, let's start with sacrifice bunts. Um, You know, there's the book. Nobody knows who wrote the book, but whoever wrote the book was an idiot. (laughs) <laughs> and so the the book says that you get a man on first with no outs in a close game, you ought to sacrifice him over to second base uh, because that will increase the chance of scoring exactly one run. Um, now, some better books have shown that that's actually not such a great strategy because even... When it succeeds, expected runs scored are about the same. And especially now, most Major League Baseball players don't know how to bunt. So it's basically a bad idea. The same is true for steals. Unless you're really good at steals, if, you have to be like a 75% success rate to uh, be adding value uh, with stolen bases. So the question is, do teams learn? So uh, here's a graph, Uh, well, the animation here, that kind of ruins my joke. But uh, uh, you can see this is the graph of the bunt rate in baseball. And uh, you can see I put in some key moments in history. (laughs) I asked Bill, what was the first edition of the baseball abstract that was read by more than 100 people? And he said 1978. And you can see when that happened, uh, basically nothing happened to Bunce. Although then there was one year when it fell, but then it started climbing back up. Then we had Michael Lewis's book published in 2003. You can see again uh, Bunts go up and then kind of stay there. Then we seem to have some miraculous learning uh, and that's, 2011 is when the movie of Moneyball came out. <laughs> so uh, apparently Brad Pitt is the only person that can, can convince uh, baseball. Um, and your wife. Uh, well, movies are, you know, you guys are all jealous, but. Uh, <laughs> okay, so Steeles, the blue line is Steeles and again actually you see sort of the same turning points like again the movie seems to have uh, ha- caused a sudden drop in the steel rate um the red line is the success rate so in no year uh were steel's successful 75% of the time but they are trending up so it it looks like now they're Steals are not completely stupid and they're infrequent. Uh, Basketball, um, we're gonna talk about three-point shooting, Daryl's favorite topic. Here's my favorite stat. Larry Bird uh, had a lifetime uh, shooting percentage from the three-point line of 0.376. He got 1.9 shots, Per game. James Harden has exactly the same shooting percentage. Oh. Daryl, using an HP calculator, <laughs> figured Reverse out polish. that 0. 0.4 times 3 is greater than 0. 0.5 times 2. And even 0. 0.376, that works. And uh, Harden takes 10 shots a game. So uh, remember, Harden is about as good um, as uh, Larry Bird was, but he gets five times more shots. Uh, Now the league has sort of figured this out, but it took a really long time. Uh, We stole this graph from someone's name, Stephen Shea. Thank you. Uh, (laughs) It's slicker than my team could produce, Um, but here are, two graphs from us, the the key the one on the left, the line that's sloping up pretty fast is the number of three-point attempts. Uh, the interesting thing is the line that's the same color, some sort of light orangey thing, is completely flat, which illustrates an interesting thing, which is that you have been able to increase the number of three-point attempts a lot without decreasing the success rate hardly at all. Uh, Now, two-for-ones, Daryl is obsessed with this. Um, When I go to a game, he starts screaming, two-for-one. So uh, you guys all know what a two-for-one is. So do teams take advantage of this? Um, so this is a plot uh, since uh, 2004. The top line is the team that does this best. The yellow line is the team that does it worse, and the one in the middle is average. You can see there if you squint, there's a little bit of a trend. Um, here's the result of Daryl's obsession. That's the Rockets. Very good. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's good. You know, you're as good at this as anybody. You know, <laughs> I don't know what you think you'd really want. but uh, that. So, football. Um, Bill and I were at a conference in 2003 in Scottsdale, which I claim was the origin of this conference that Daryl doesn't pay us anything for. Um, but David Romer presented an early draft of his fourth down paper at that conference. And we now, it was interestingly called, do firms maximize evidence from professional football? And the bottom line is teams punt too much. And everybody in this room knows that. Um, Brian Burke, who was just on the previous panel, has extended that analysis. Uh, The question is, have teams learned? so uh, this chart is using Brian's analysis of win percentage lost by dumb fourth down decisions. And this is for, the, for every fourth down play. This is just for plays inside the 50. And you can see there is some learning. Um, And although last year there seemed to be a a little bit of regression, this is inside the 10. And I'll leave it to you to decide which one of these should be easier to figure out. So there is some learning, but for a long time, although every team had one geek who read David Romer's paper and then later followed Brian Burke, uh, teams didn't seem to be paying very much attention. Um, Finally, uh, and I will go through this in a little more detail because there may be one or two of you have not read our paper. Uh, Cade Massey and I wrote a paper about uh, the NFL draft. Um, This is a plot of how much it costs to acquire a pick in the NFL draft. And each dot represents a trade. And you can see that we have a miraculous fit to this line. Cade must be the world's greatest econometrician, (laughs) or we were just estimating this chart. So, this is, of course, the famous chart, the chart that Jimmy Johnson asked one of Jerry Jones' partners to estimate uh, years ago. It was not meant to be normative in in the sense that this wasn't thought to be the value of picks. This was the observed prices. And he just fit something like this curve by hand to the trades and created this chart. And people have just been using it ever since. Now, the, the analysis Kate and I did was we looked, the green line is Our measure of the dollars of performance from each pick. And that green line math, there's huge variance there. But that's the best fit. The red line is how much you have to pay them. Notice that's going down steeper. What is a pick worth to the team? It's worth the difference, right? That's the surplus that the team gets. And if you subtract, you get that blue line, which as you can see, goes up throughout the first round. And to see how odd that is, here I've plotted that last curve and the pick value curve on the same chart. And you can see that the the chart says that the first pick in the draft is worth five times as much as the first pick in the second round. And we say that the first pick in the second round is actually worth more. So you could trade one, the first pick for five picks that are each worth more. Now, that is not to say that those five players are better, but that you would get more value from those five. Now, the only person that we ever convinced that this was right was Sashi Brown.
0: <laughs> um,
1: so has anything and, and changed? Fired in the uh, and <laughs> look, you That's know. Paid me yet. Uh it's not my fault you got fired. You know, <laughs> nobody said you had to listen to what we were saying. In fact, <laughs> everybody else thought you were an idiot. So yeah. <laughs> uh, okay, so has anything changed? No. This is a new estimate of the value of picks, and it's we just put the chart on. This time, we didn't estimate it. We just plotted the trades against the chart, and you can see teams, uh, and Sashi can attest to this, teams use the chart as like a price list. Oh, you want the second pick? Then you got to give us 2,600 points. And that's the asking price, and it seems like teams—it's teams don't trade unless somebody's willing to pay up the retail price. Although we say that price is too high. Um, now, that steepness would only be justified if teams are really good at picking players. Are they? Well. Cade and I estimated back with our data that across the entire draft, we have this better than the next guy statistic. Take all the edge rushers, put them in order. What's the probability that the nth guy is better than the n plus first? And we got an answer of 52%. So the league is slightly better than coin flipping. In the first round, they're slightly better than that, 56%. Uh, now, my crack team has uh, re-estimated that using uh, w- wins over, against replacement. Um, this is what we get. Again, against, for the whole draft, 52%. It's slightly higher uh, in the first round, and it varies a bit by position, but It's not easy for any position. Uh, Okay, so that's my talk. Uh, One conclusion is yes, teams learn. In the case of baseball, we're talking four decades. Uh, Is it that Bill is just a bad communicator or (laughs) something else? Uh, So why does this happen? I don't know although I have some thoughts, but uh, my distinguished panel will uh, opine and we'll start with Bill. So we'll go in order of the sports I talked about, uh, baseball, basketball, football. Bill. The,
2: uh, well, th- there are a lot of different reasons. Uh, one is that sometimes, many times analysis teaches you a different thing than playing the sport teaches you. Uh, a really common thing is if, if a move works 51% of the time, people think it's a good move, but the, you know, if it works 51% of the time, but the cost of failure is three times higher than the, than the, uh, than the payoff for success, but if, if, if it, maybe not 51% of the time, but if a move works 60, 70% of the time, people are going to think it's a good move, and you can't convince them, uh, based on logic, that, uh, uh, that it, it's actually not a good move, despite the fact that it usually works. That's actually what kept kept the sacrifice month going for all those years. It usually works, right? Uh, the uh, so there's there's a kind of analysis. Another key thing, though, is that uh, in order for the general manager to make a good decision, there has to the the lowest person in the organization has to un- kind of understand what's going. I mean, the 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 decisions that the general, in baseball at least, the decisions that the general manager can make are limited by the decisions that the scouts have made, the decisions that the coaches have made. So in order for the organization to turn a corner, you have to get all four wheels working together, and it's not four, it's 400, you know? Uh, So it takes a long time to reach the point at which there is a depth of understanding throughout the organization that supports a good decision being made at the top of the organization. That'd be my my best explanation.
1: And the other thing is, people are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, let me write that one down. Oh, all right. Uh, speaking of Daryl.
0: <laughs> um, so I would I would say the. You're, you're only going to get innovation and fits and starts uh, until you get actually... Everything works in different time cycles. Players have a, a time cycle of their career that's short. Coaches haven't even, have a shorter time window than GMs, and then finally owners. You don't get a consistent upward trend, I think, in change in a sport until you get ownership-level buy-in and conversion. And then, even after you get that, you need... What Bill said. Now you need to reorient your your um, cruise ship, uh, you know, that's turning, or battleship, and turn the whole thing. So it it takes uh, more time than it should. I'll give an example. So Coach D'Antoni, who is in in Phoenix, uh, and many people, I think, understood the power of the three-pointer. It isn't hard to do that math. I think people just they weren't comfortable coaching it uh it was seen as a gimmick because the people it was just added in it would be like you know in the the big three right now they have a four-point shot ah it's a gimmick you know like and so that was how the three-point line was treated initially so but the best example i've heard is mike d'antoni in phoenix winning 60 games multiple times unquestionably one of the best teams in the league unquestionably has a chance to win the title and almost did multiple times. Um, He describes to me this slog of resistance that he went against, which was um, not only the media, which I think people see and perceive, and is real because it permeates everything, uh, but also his own players. The players, it's like a reinforcing effect. They read the media, so that sort of seeps in, and then the players are, you know, maybe reading that, and because they happen to lose, you can lose to a playoff team any number of ways any given year, and they lost to the Spurs and some other teams that maybe were playing what you'd call more traditional. And, you know, basically, they bought into a narrative form that their only way to win was they had to have a post player. And Mike talks about this is the end of his Phoenix time. You know, even he bought off on we have to trade for shaq that's our only our only chance to win and it was basically taking his ferrari that he had built with steve nash and amari and you know basically throwing a big boat anchor on the back (laughs) and like all of a sudden it didn't didn't work as well and um and it you know obviously it came to the rockets and here there's been alignment he'll say you know i think we should do this and that and we'll be like yeah do that but do it all game do it more and uh so it, it takes not only an innovator like mike but also an ownership level buy-in all the way down like we have to like have it all come together and then it takes great success which we haven't had and might you know we haven't had the ultimate success uh but golden state has uh with very similar approach and once you have that everyone sort of sees they're going to have to catch up essentially
3: uh, sash Thanks. I would agree. Uh, I think Daryl and Bill hit it. I, I think there has to be an organizational commitment uh, up and down, starting from ownership right down through your manager, general manager, and coaching and staff, and, and hopefully to your players and support staff as well. And that doesn't exist most places, uh, to be frank. And even the dialogue around how we want to make decisions uh, is, is lacking. And so I think there's a lot of quality information out here, but the other thing I'd add to the discussion, is I think how we present information is really critical. Uh, When you're bringing an ownership group uh, into these decisions, into this information, um, I I think the the manner in which, and it's particularly relevant, I think, for this conference to understand the manner in which we introduce that information so that it can be a collective, work and I listen to a lot of panelists and I think this is becoming more top of mind for folks that uh, are leading research groups and analytics groups and teams, that the how we present is as important as the what.
1: Does the, how much has it hurt the movement that Billy Bean has been unlucky in the playoffs or is it really the case that analytics just doesn't work in the playoffs as uh, Daryl is often told. So, I mean, if the if Billy had managed to win a World Series, how much would that have helped? It, it helped with the time frame. It uh, that that shortens the time
2: frame of general acceptance because an awful lot of an awful lot of people in the general public evaluate what you're doing by the World Series winner. But the growth of the analytics community, the fact that there are all you people, all you guys here now that, uh, that uh, to an extent, the things that you guys learn and the things that you guys know permeate the general culture because you call talk show host and try to straighten them out. Uh, and to an extent, <laughs> you make the general culture less relevant because there is a sophisticated culture that has a better handle on the issues.
0: Well, a common thing will happen is the, like, you can't win playing x way like you can't play without having a post-up player as mike and phoenix or you can't play without a traditional center which is what what we're hearing now uh, even though golden state essentially won three of the last four uh, titles uh, playing all their critical minutes without uh, a traditional center and the point that's never made is like everything becomes a referendum you know, we won. I think I think we we're ten and two. Lost a couple of games recently, and again, it's like you know, one loss to the Clippers, and oh, now, no, beat beat the Lakers. You know, beat beat all these. Uh, we had several uh, very good wins, but one loss to the Clippers. So everything becomes a referendum. And what's not talked about is there are more teams that don't win the title playing a traditional way every year by far uh, than there are playing sort of this novel way. But anytime you're Anytime you're the new change out there, it's it's you know media whack-a-mole where you know if you pop your head out there, they're ready to pop it.
1: You you think again that the the fact that Golden State managed to win three championships, taking a lot of threes, is a part of the explanation for that curve shooting up? Absolutely. Uh, and sort of discounting the fact that they had three of the best players in the league on the yeah. same team. And I think that's the reasonable
0: counter-argument to all this. Like, I mean, players still matter way more than the style of play in our sport. It might be true of others. So, I mean, they unquestionably had, like, four or five of some of the greatest players in NBA history on one team. And so they probably could have won playing a different style as well, just to be. But, but the fact they're playing that way. Does, you know, people copy what is ultimately perceived to be the most successful?
2: The, I feel like I'm sealing Sasha's time, but the, uh, in, in, base, in 2015, the Royals won the World Series, and they had <clears throat> three relievers who had ERAs around one, right? <clears throat> so you get, if, if they're in the game after six innings, mm-hmm. uh, you got, you've got three innings of shutdown relief, and your chances of winning are really good. Well, the next year, everybody's talking about, we're going to do this the Royals way. Yeah, right. You're all going to go find three relievers who have areas of one, right? It doesn't work that way. You, you, have, to, you, have, to have, you have to work with the town, you're there. And the other example is, people still say that, that, uh, uh, the, that the power, uh, a power-based offense doesn't work in postseason when the data clearly shows that it works better in the postseason than it does in the regular season because there are fewer scoring events so the hitting hitting home runs to score your runs works better in the postseason i mean the yankees have won several times using that strategy uh, but people still say that it doesn't you know it doesn't change what people say
3: yeah i think that the resort orientation is an opportunity for most of us uh, you and i talked about this a bit yesterday but uh, you know, what Daryl's done uh, certainly in, in basketball has been a great lesson for us. And it takes a lot of courage uh, because uh, until you win a championship, if that's the, the goal, uh, which it is for all of us, uh, you're not going to get that, that affirmation. Um, but the reality is the underlying process uh, that, that he's put in place and the learnings are tremendously valuable for all of us. And uh, I think he hit the nail on the head. It's the, the notion that we're going to judge an analytics-based approach fairly is something that we all have to get over. It's just not going to happen. Sashi, are you surprised
1: at all that, uh, that the new chart uh, looks exactly like the old chart? Uh, was it your experience that the, the chart Comes up in the conversation and
3: that, that's sort of the way it's framed. It's like the asking price? Yeah, it, it, it governs. And there's not a lot of, I mean, you wrote Nudge, right? So there's not a lot of consequence to moving off the chart uh, or not moving off the chart, rather. So in football, we set out in 2016 uh, with a decimated young pipeline of players. And in the NFL, uh, that's your that's your key I mean that that's your lifeblood for any roster and and we had very few young players on our roster an old and expensive and and bad team coming off a three and 13 season and we wanted to try to create additional draft capital draft picks uh, we set out to try to create about another draft and a half over about two or three years and by the end we were Uh, We had created almost two and a half extra draft classes by selling into the arbitrage opportunities that you just described on the screen. So we loved it, going by the chart as a seller. I remember. Yeah, yeah.
0: I I have a question, Sashi. So the Patriots have been wise to the inefficiencies of this chart for a long time. You guys in Cleveland while you were there. My perception is Philly. Uh, Mm -hmm. I could be wrong. So you have like a a cadre of teams, that's not enough to change the chart, I guess, Is it? I mean, or, or because they're all just sitting on the sell side, still, it still doesn't show up. Yeah, so. well,
1: so one correction, first of all, the Patriots never have one of those top five picks because they win. So we haven't observed what they would do if, uh. And, uh, and there's no, to geek out on the economics, there's no arbitrage opportunity. You can't sell that pick short mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and uh, the patriots the the arbitrage move they do explicitly take advantage of is trading this year 's picks for next mm-hmm. which is a gold mine um, but since they're drafting at the bottom of the first round yeah they're they may may be willing to go a little bit into the second round, but they've traded up a little a few picks as well and um, there's, I would say, that one draft that Sashi pulled off, um, is stands out. There was never anybody else that did that, and we've seen a couple situations like when Sashi handed over what was it two firsts and three seconds, uh, and a successor just spent them all, and the same the Raiders this year. Had a, a similar situation, and they just spent them. Mo- if you have all those draft picks, you can have them in perpetuity, and um, no, nobody's patient enough. Um, what, what is the, what's the role of ownership in this? and um, generally speaking <laughs> uh, how could <laughs> uh, uh, you know let's suppose that I somehow come into two billion dollars and and uh, uh, buy a team um, what would be the the problems that I would face and what are the problems hypothetical general managers face in trying to do something different?
3: Well, different in different sports. But I think, you know, finding a real, as I, we said at the outset, having a commitment organizationally to make sure that you have robust information supporting your decisions and, and processes that, that fully integrate Uh, data and and analytics into them, rather than have that be a separate cadre of people uh, that come into the room at a certain time and leave uh, during key decisions, but truly integrate it in commitment to uh, and commit organizationally from an ownership level down. And there are some really good owners out here that I think that get this, and you're gonna start to see those teams do really well, and you're starting to see many in baseball already uh, flourish, but but they're coming into the other sports. I think the challenge has been, and particularly in football, a lot of our information was new and we haven't figured out quite the way to introduce it uh, in a powerful and dynamic and and compelling way uh, that could shape and move the entire organization. And there's a lot of success that's been had over a number of years without use of any of this information, so when you go to a head coach um, and you don't have a track record of showing patience as a lot of uh, NFL teams. I mean, we saw all the stuff in Brooklyn this morning with the Nets. Um, but uh, NFL teams, NBA teams, EPL teams, baseball teams alike. Um, to have someone relinquish what they've learned over time as a head coach or a GM and embrace a new way of making decisions and new information into those processes. Uh, while at the same time they're reading across uh, lines their colleagues are getting fired in a year or two, uh, they, that, that doesn't job. And so I think we as uh, ownership groups, we as executives, have to make sure that uh, we align our patients with the, uh, the the time that's necessary to have some of these plans, strategies really play out. I think it's critical.
1: Bill, how, how important was it for you that you had an owner that well, was so inclined.
2: I've been lucky on both ends. So I started writing about this stuff in, in 1975, and, and a lot of what I was saying, and to be honest, I was rude in the way I said it a lot of times, The uh, but the, uh, was uh, that the way baseball was doing a lot of things didn't actually make any sense. The, uh, and you can't, if you look at it from the standpoint of baseball professionals, they enter the game and they're taught this way of thinking about it by their youth coach and then their college coach and then their minor league coach and their major league manager. And you know, some guy working in a factory in Kansas says you're all wrong. What are you gonna think? The, uh, when I get to, 25 years pass, I started working in the Red Sox in 2002 and we have an owner, John Henry, who is better at analysis than any of us are. And that, that makes a tremendous difference. First of all, that he understands what would... I had chances to work with with baseball teams before that, but I never did because I knew they didn't understand what I was talking about, and they were going to hire me to be there and not pay any attention to what I was saying. And, you know, who the hell needs that. The uh, uh, But John Henry understood what I was saying, and he was very, very good at at analysis, so the organization was committed to it. And we were also lucky, I mean, we won four World Series uh, in the time that I was there, and we were good, but we weren't that good, you know. Uh, There was a lot of good fortune that went into it that helped the general acceptance of the ideas that had been around for a long time.
0: I think, Richard, if you bought a team, you'd find quickly how hard it is. Yeah. Um, So it's very hard to That's fine because I
1: don't have the two billion. Okay. (laughs) What are you up to?
0: You haven't been able to (laughs) make money on this people are stupid idea? (laughs) I've found
1: that telling them they're stupid, you can't sell that.
0: Okay. Um, No, it's hard. You immediately become obviously uh, a public figure often. Uh, Everyone at the party only wants to talk about that. Even if the right strategy is to be patient and maybe have a down year and build, uh, very easy to say in concept, but every night you're going to the arena and everyone's depressed and your friends start, you know, pulling away a little bit from you because you're you're not the uh, as interesting in town and you're incredibly successful. You've won the Nobel Prize and probably been successful whatever you've done, and now you're in this crucible where one out of 32 or 30 teams wins and it gets very hard and it explains why organizations often can go back and forth um and even even um so i think that's that's i don't know if that was the crux of your question but
1: uh i'm not grading
0: okay <laughs> but i think that's that's where it gets, it's incredibly hard actually to do uh these patient things it it, it really is and um uh, I've been fortunate, just like Bill, with uh, you know uh, Wick Grausebeck and then Les Alexander now Tillman. They had owners that were very incredibly supportive but um, um, you know so that's been that's been positive, but it's it for sure isn't like if you're trying to convert someone that's 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 a big challenge so um,
1: the The six examples i I gave are sort of all old ones that uh, maybe the two-for-one a little bit less, but old standbys. What What's an example of something in each of your sports that you think people uh, aren't talking about as much? And like, what's the new frontier? Um, uh, Stash, we'll
3: start with you. You know, I think um, Really understanding, you're seeing it play out, but I think really understanding offensive football spatially in, in the NFL is going to be something that uh, is going to be critical, and, and you've already seen it in a couple different places, but uh, we are finding more success across the, the NFL with uh, younger quarterbacks playing a different style and adapting an offense to what you're seeing them play in college, and that's certainly been proven out in a couple places across the league and I think we're now going to be able to embrace more quarterbacks playing at a higher level uh, across the league as, as passing has kind of been, uh, uh, been the driver for success. Uh, and pass defense, likewise, is going to have to step up and um, to do its part. But I think that's, that's the one area with the new tracking data that's uh, the NFL has been very reluctant to give the teams for a long period of time, but it's now going to start to roll out and you're going to see that really influence a lot of decisions and personnel and now also tactically. But there's so much opportunity, I think, for uh, fourth down, um, certainly the draft and, and, and the expected value of picks. Uh, uh, across the NFL. I, I think there's a lot of room for, for growth. It's, it's, it's the laggard of, amongst the three sports that we're talking about here today. And I'll let uh, Yeah, discuss. Bill, what, what, what makes you scream
1: at the TV most when you're watching a baseball game?
2: <laughs> It's It's not exactly an, uh, an answer to your question, Dick, but it's relevant to this subject. Uh, the, um, you were talking about the relative advisability of, of punting on fourth down. Yeah. And you still see you still see coaches. You know, it's it's fourth and four at the forty-yard line, and and you're you're down t- you're down ten, and they it's like, what? The uh, uh, but at the at the time that that idea first emerged, pro football totally rejected it. But people playing Madden football adopted that so rap so immediately that Madden had to change the code. Uh, to force them not to do that, the uh, and
1: right, apparently it pissed Madden off, yeah. And so he demanded that they change the code, really. So that because pe- people were just winning all the time by always going for it, right? The uh, <laughs> uh, a, a, similar, a
2: similar thing in baseball. I remember playing table games forty years ago when people would use an, an opener for an inning or two, uh, and and then switch to the the main starting pitcher. But it didn't catch on in actual baseball until, you know, 2017 or something. The, uh, uh, it's, what, it's one of those things that people who don't have as much invested in the outcome have a lot easier time buying in than the people who are going to get fired if this doesn't work. Yeah, the, uh, so.
0: I have a quick football one on fourth down. An unnamed team in football, there's someone on the periphery. Just kidding. I, can't. <laughs> I do hate the Steelers from Cleveland. Um, so an unnamed team, they were like, on the periphery, they were frustrated their team had drafted a punter too high, and then we the conversation later, and then they're like, we don't go on fourth down enough. And and I was like, well, it actually makes sense maybe to draft a punter very high if you're never going to go on fourth down. It actually <laughs> might be a useful, useful thing. Um, in basketball, not not surprising, I would say, uh, it's, the, the, the thing you'll see is, you know, we, I don't necessarily call it small ball, it's really more skill ball. I think, shockingly, the, the blinding insight, and Bill made a good point, that like these basic insights, like threes are worth more than two, you know, soon they just become common knowledge and no one even remembers who cared about it, uh, this one's going to happen. I mean, there's this blinding insight that you should just play your five best players as much as possible. Um, and it turns out that it's very rare that your best, most skilled players also happen to be seven feet tall. Those bell curves just don't overlap very often. Uh, so, yeah, really all, a big part of what we're doing, there's spacing and all that, but a big part of it is just like, let's just put the five, you know, shocking, let's just put the five best out there not worry about position. turns out to be a pretty, uh, pretty good uh, strategy that... You could probably chart in a couple of years. So. I,
1: I wonder whether uh, in other sports uh, there's too much obsession about this player plays this position. Uh, like in baseball, uh, in high school baseball, the best athlete uh, plays shortstop on the days that he doesn't pitch right. and he hits cleanup. Right. And then if he makes it into the major leagues as a pitcher... Uh, he never takes batting practice and suddenly hits, like, 050. Right. What, what happened? The uh,
2: I know that in a draft room for several years, there's always two guys in the draft who could be either a pitcher or a position player. And I always argued that if we get him, let's use him as a position player for a couple of years, and if that doesn't work, then we can make a pitcher out of him. And I always lost the argument because people always want to make him a pitcher. And if he fails as a pitcher, it's too damn late to try him as an outfielder. Whereas if, if you do it the other way, it, you, can, you can make it work. But, the, uh, uh, but you make a good point. And, and the guy who successfully challenged that, of course, was Shohei Itani. And the reason for that is he comes from a different culture where that's more, uh, more tolerated. So the answer is simply that our baseball culture doesn't really... Tolerate or reward the guy who plays both ways.
1: I mean, you—I could imagine uh, a left-handed pitcher who plays left field when there are left-handed hitters up, and pitches the rest of the time. Is that a completely stupid idea?
2: No. Cincinnati has this guy, Michael Lorenzen, and and uh, is. He's a fun player. He can pitch and he can hit, and and I don't really understand why they don't make more use of him. But this is the way it is. But the uh, you may remember the 2004 uh, playoffs. The Yankees beat us in what appeared to be in the their third win in the in the playoff series. They beat us something like we were behind like 18 to two or something. We used to have this guy on the on the team named Dave McCarty. He was a first baseman. He'd pitched in college, and we were getting beat that bad. He'd pitch. The, uh, uh, and, but we released him a couple of months earlier, so I'm, I'm walking out of the stadium with uh, Bill LeJoy, who had been in baseball forever, and
1: Bill says, where's Dave McCarty when you need him? <laughs> <laughs> so uh, one of the questions from the audience is, how do you uh, use analytics without dehumanizing the players? It's dehumanizing them that gives them the value that they have.
2: I mean, nobody in his right mind would pay a guy a $30 million salary. I said this earlier, so if some of you were here earlier, I apologize for repeating myself. But nobody in his right mind would pay a guy a $30 million salary as a salary. The reason they get that kind of money is they become a commodity. Once they become a commodity, then it's justifiable paying that kind of money to them. But as long as they're, and then, you know, guys who are saying, I I don't like to be dehumanized by these analytics guys, all right, well, then take a salary on a human scale right the uh, it's, it's only the fact that it's only <laughs> the fact that we've dehumanized them that makes
1: them worth that much yeah uh for 10 million a year i could do a little dehumanization right,
0: right. <laughs> i i went through this with pj tucker recently we made a trade obviously clint capella out and pj tucker's role is getting bigger and his agent talked to me very very good agent pj he's like it's gonna be more pressure on him it might be challenging. And I was like, these are all really good things for you. Like you want, a like he's gonna be even more valuable. And uh, he, he sort of got it, but there was some nervousness even. And I get it on, um, you know, there's gonna be more pressure, more pressure on him. I have a tiny question for the group and Bill, if it's okay. And yeah. that's, is there anything if we use data where we might blind ourselves and there's a chart for something we're doing stupid that over time, we should be increasing. And the specific one I thought of earlier when you were talking to Tom is, you know, when, we inv- when you guys invest in players, clearly their fielding acumen has some aspect of how they invest in players. Um, but the only way to estimate that is to have them in some box of a position, I think. And so now if we're gonna have like five outfielders and two infielders, Could the data and our our need to be able to estimate the 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 value they're generating by fielding limit then how you might creatively use them out in the field? I'm just I'm just asking.
2: Yes, it definitely could. And but it's a it's a tremendous analytical challenge, and that's what prevents us from becoming obsolete is that we have we have new new problems that we
3: don't understand.
2: That would be my answer. Yeah,
3: I would I would agree with that. I mean, I think. I think when you, when you step back from the game, it is the blend. And, and going back on the, the question before, I think we have to find a way right, to communicate with our players and athletes. This is, a, this is the forefront of the challenge. I mean, this data is here and it's coming. We have to find a way to communicate with our players and athletes so that they can understand. I mean, that, that I think, I believe, is the new frontier. Not just the coaches, not just the front office but also get the players to understand I, You guys seem to be doing a great job. I'm not sure how the conversation with PJ exactly went. I know he can be an honorary son of a bitch sometimes, but uh, <laughs> good luck to you and, and continue. Yeah. Um, but, but we challenge ourselves to make sure that, that we have a lot of those conversations with our athletes at the Wizards and Mystics and, and we'll continue to do that and find better ways to, to bring them into the discussion.
0: A, a lot of things, real quick, become, come full circle. Back to this fielding thing is that ultimately, what people were trying to do, scouts and others in the past in most sports, was like get down to the raw skill level of these players and not necessarily like exactly the outcomes they generate. Uh, but as the games get more dynamic, fielders move around. We don't play with a traditional center. You actually need your data. Really, is trying to estimate this the raw skill level of the players that they can be then deployed. Into different environments that might be changing.
1: Well, um, to what extent is part of the frontier player development and teaching? I mean, why are there still players in the NBA that can't make free throws? Can't you teach them either to wilt, wilt it up or? Uh,
0: I think it's one of the great things because there are many people in the audience who can shoot free throws better than you can do something better than a pro player, right? And and, uh, if you look, you know, players absolutely improve their free throws over time once they get to the pros and even through college. So it does improve over time. Our skill level as a league has gone up over time. All those things are are true, but you can still and the reason is it turned. You know, the the other skills are more important, and we're selecting for all those and you know certain larger players, generally, uh, the fact they can't shoot a free throw doesn't overwhelm the fact they have these very unique other skills. That's why, that's why you see the Chuck Hayes of the world. They can't shoot a free throw making the pros. So.
1: But there is a more general question, which is uh, how much can you teach somebody? And when you're selecting players, if, if there's a player who has flaw A, and you can, he'll only succeed if he can improve that. Right. Do, wh- which ones do you know, oh, yeah, we can fix that? And which ones are fatal? The, uh, um, if you guys
2: get the chance to work in professional sports, the most important thing that you can do is learn to respect the athletes. And sometimes athletes can be jerks. But the the reality is you can't convince them of anything until you treat them with respect and until you learn to respect their viewpoint of it. Once you are able to internalize that, then you can sometimes move on. That's the best answer I can give you.
3: The understanding, though, I think Dick is is critical. I mean, we took a a player at at a high draft pick with the understanding that we thought we could teach them to, to run routes and found that that was something that we thought was well within our uh, bailiwick and our, our, our expertise on our coaching staff. And within you know six or seven weeks of camp uh, and, and the off season, the coaches were just, just done with them. So I think, again, that goes back to kind of the organizational commitment, but also are the tools that we can go back and look to really identify uh, what types of of, uh, data information we look historically have allowed us to partner with our athletes have that respect for them to bring them along in their development and um, often I, I think there's there needs to be enough humility along with that commitment, but enough humility uh, to, to understand what you can and can't change about that. An yeah, animal but uh, when I hear that story, I'm not sure whether there was a problem with the
1: scouting or with the teaching. Or both. Or, or both. But right, we, we, we thought we could t- teach this guy this. Maybe he was too dumb, or maybe we were lousy teachers. Right. Uh, when students fail my exams, that's because they were too dumb. But, uh. but Daryl told
2: me a similar story about a, a player I half half persuaded him to acquire, and <laughs> and once they got there, he wouldn't. You know, Daryl would try to tell him, you know, if you could just do this, you'll make six million a year in the NBA. But he wouldn't do it. You he, he still insisted on yeah on uh, doing playing the playing the game the way he wanted to
0: play it. You're in a not so secret. Thing, Richard, I think it's really important. The big advantages, I think, that are coming are once you have war in baseball, which is more precise than other sports, that becomes what everyone sort of tacks their value off of. So then it becomes where can you find the players that, like you said, you can improve the improvable thing and become better than that than our competitors? That's where the pools of value are because if you know if you're just working off the same chart as everyone else, even if it's a better chart, you know you're not going to create the edge across 30, 30 plus teams. So.
1: Yeah, my hunch is, and since we've got you know a thousand kids out there that are smarter and in some cases much younger than some of us, um, I think my hunch is that one of the big frontiers is going to be figuring out this question about what stuff can we teach mm-hmm. so it's easy even i could figure out that three-point shots are worth 50 percent more than two-point shots but how
0: about playing your five best guys could you have done that one? uh no
1: i wouldn't have been able
0: oh. to figure that out
1: but uh you know can we teach guys to hit free throws can we can we teach guys to you know can, can how successful will you be in getting your guys to play a completely different style with no, no big guy clogging up the middle? That was somewhat of an unanswered question. And, uh, but more generally, can we? what are the things we can improve upon? And I'm not optimistic. I, I know that the kind of stuff I teach is really hard and there but there will be some things that you can give people like little rules of thumb that that will make them better but i don't know what they are especially in sports and i think um somebody should write some papers on that and uh i'll make sure daryl puts them on the program next year so i think we've run out of time Um, thanks